There's an overwhelming amount of financial advice in the news and on social media. Who do you listen to? Are they looking out for what's best for you? How do you tune out the noise? In this podcast, trusted advisors Emily Augusto, CPA, and Amanda Vaught, JD, bring their extensive education and experience to delve into all aspects of personal finance. Emily and Amanda make topics like investing, taxes, and financial planning interesting and accessible. And they provide a framework to help you think through the plethora of financial advice and news out there. Are you ready to start making the best personal financial decisions for you? Welcome to Connecting the Dollars with Propel Financial Advisors. Welcome uh, back to another episode of Connecting the Dollars. Today, I am joined by David Vaught, a fellow advisor and co-founder. He is a CFA and has decades of experience with investing. Um, Today, we wanted to get into talking about models. Um, If you're not familiar with models, that is a formula that some advisors or brokers use for their clients' investments. So a type of model that probably many people are familiar with would be like a target date fund. That's just a formulaic um, way to pick investments in your portfolio. Um, This can be a legitimate technique that people use, but there are also many issues with it, which we are going to get in today. So um, David's going to talk about that some more, the quantitative techniques, but also some qualitative considerations. Um, how this impacts the sales model that some financial advisors use and um, whether or not these models are um, something we can rely on or not based on their past performance or if they're, we can be more forward-looking with them. So, um, David, you want to um, get started? I think, yeah, Mark, man, I think that's a good quick summary of, uh, of, of I think, some of the misuses of models that we see or that some of our prospective clients have seen and don't like or want to know more about. Um, the, the idea of a model itself is not a not necessarily a bad concept. It's the misuse we're concerned about. Uh, a model really is quantitative in nature. Um, you know, you set up formulas or you set up criteria. Uh, you know, sometimes they're done in very complicated spreadsheets. Um, they often involve rebalancing factors. Um, you know, asset allocation factors, security selection factors, and weighting. So they can be complicated, you know, when you when you kind of open the hood and, and look at what is really in the model. Some of them are fairly simple. <clears throat> but we we tend to think that they over uh emphasize the quantitative aspect uh of investment analysis. <clears throat> now Obviously, you have to use quantitative measures in the investment world. It's all about numbers and it's all about quantities and values. But <clears throat> when you when you have those and you use those as a guide and then subject them to qualitative assessment, that's more of a judgmental question about the quality of what you're doing or the quality of the, of the investment you're investing in, not just their numerical uh, characteristics. So mm-hmm. I think that's the first real problem with models is they tend to oversimplify and over uh, 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 use quantitative approaches instead of a combination of quantitative and qualitative approaches. Okay, so can we can we dig into maybe an an example um, just so listeners know a little bit more what we mean? So 
you know, one easy model that or simple model that comes to mind is when you find in a 529 plan, say an age-based portfolio that starts aggressive for a certain age range. And as a child ages, the um, allocation of stocks and bonds shifts over time. That would be a purely quantitative approach. A lot of 529s just offer, you know, different indexes um, within that model that shifts over time with age. So that would be a quantitative. So what would be a qualitative consideration that you would want to put into that kind of um Indexes are themselves very quantitative, you right? Know? And many of those uh, five twenty nine plans only offer quantitative choices in indexes. Uh, a qualitative choice would 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 look at the index and say, "Oh, this is an index that's done pretty well in the last two or three years, uh, but how well might it do in the future?" The, the, the qualitative approach is often more forward looking. Um, you don't have any actual data about, or you have some, you have some economic indicators uh, that, you know, that may be forward looking, you know, like the leading economic indicators or something like that, mm-hmm. or, or what you think growth is going to be in the economy. You have some macro indicators, but it's hard to have um, uh, qualitative numbers. So if you look at the model and, and you see it's emphasizing uh, the top seven stocks in the S&P index, which is doing very well the last few years, um, in a qualitative approach, you would look at, well, uh, what are those companies prospect for the future? How strong is the management? You know, that's a judgment about how well the management is doing. You know, what's the, t- what's their, what's, what's their, uh, uh, what's their customer set a base saying in terms of how satisfied they are with the product? You know, that, those are sources of information that are a little more hard to uh, to get in some cases, but they can be very important in being future-oriented. And uh, the quantitative measures just can't do that very well mm-hmm. because they're yeah, backward-looking. Yeah. And I, you brought up several examples from the stock market, but I mean, I think the, the bond market comes into play, too. Um, you know, should your allocation be purely based on age or, you know, if the bond market is at record high rates now and you think the rates are going to be cut, that means you have a strong tailwind potentially in the bond market. And maybe you do want a higher allocation of bonds right now, regardless of your age. And that's a forward looking thing that um, is not necessarily dependent on if you're 16 or if you're two for talking about a 529 type of example. Right. So, yeah, in factors from the client themselves yeah. can be important to understanding whether the model applies or whether it continues to apply. Um, you, if you're using a 529 to save for college, but then a grandparent decides to make a large gift for college, you know, that can totally change what the investment approach might be. You know, the grandparent might be very interested in knowing, well, how did the money I gave you be used? And did you did you invest it crazy in a crazy way and lose money on it? So, you know, the grandparent might be urging more caution, you know, uh, and, a, and a willingness to provide more money if you uh, take good care of the money I've given to the child. There's all sorts of other factors there, and it could be an inheritance that's doing that. So mm-hmm. the client uh, part of the picture just sort of goes out because the focus goes on the, the quantitative aspects of the model, not the needs and objectives of the client. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are all all great points. Um, 
unfortunately for things like 529s and and 401ks you don't have a lot of options beyond yeah. some of those types of things um which uh maybe that's a for a different episode how yeah, it got to are, be that way are but... popping up because yeah got, yeah they're, they're... The weaknesses in some of those things are becoming more apparent to people. Mm. Um, I want to mention this other point too, though, Amanda, and mm-hmm. that is that broker brokerage firms are often driven by the models as a way to control their employees. So mm-hmm. if they have a uh, a group of uh, of uh, broker uh, uh, employees that are engaged in talking to clients, they're really salespeople. They're trying to sell the model very often, as opposed to respond to the client's needs. And why are they trying to sell the model? Because their senior management, the people they really work for within that brokerage firm or corporation, they're measuring uh, that employee by how, you know, how much money they get put in the model, uh, not whether they're meeting the client's needs. So who's the boss, the client or the senior person uh, in New York that's supervising uh, the, uh, the contact people that are dealing with the customers? Um, so the, the sales incentives that get built in and around the models can literally be telling the customer, we don't like that, uh, that investment you already held, you inherited from your mother and it's done very well for the last 10 years and you want to hold it. It's not in the model and we have to sell it. You know, uh, th- those kind of, uh, knee jerk reactions to, to investor situations, you know, the, the owner, the real you know, I mean, I call them customers because brokers are really not fiduciaries, so they don't deal, you know, they like to say they're dealing with their clients, but they're really dealing with their customers. And that customer-driven sales orientation, um, it, it can be, uh, they can use models to justify what they're doing, and sometimes they over-justify that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's one thing for brokers uh broker dealers are a slightly different model than like our firm which is a registered investment advisor where we have a fiduciary standard um compared to a broker dealer which has a totally different standard um a broker dealer would be like a major bank providing investment services right like um what like a wells fargo edward jones any of those that you see if you go to like a baseball game that's advertising that's like (laughs) like a broker dealer right yeah um typically um but you know there are ria firms who do use models um and they just put you in an index and there you go um there are a lot of financial advisors out there who do believe in the index and think that that's that's it that's what you should do um which is okay i mean there's different ways to skin a cat right i mean uh, but there are, and you know, and you know, there are there there are some efficiencies in models, you know, in 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 terms of implementing them and and uh, and and kind of staying with it a little bit, and so they they have a little more application, I think, for you know uh, newer and and smaller investors that are just trying to build that first hundred thousand um, dollars, and but it begins to make a lot of difference, uh, you know, when you're talking about you know, larger sums of money always make a little difference, but um, it, you know that's really where the industry is pushing them a lot is in the you know the new investors that are building up a fund. Yeah, and um, uh, I think as investors become larger and more experienced and a little more um, you know educated on things, 
I I hope I think a lot of them are moving away from those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the indexing approach gets into what you brought up earlier that it is very backwards looking because it's an approach that has worked um, in the past, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's an approach that's going to continue to work. And at what point does it indexing stop working? I think is a big question. Um, there's a lot of you know space dedicated to that in a more academic theoretical sense. Um, but I think a lot of it is, is very valid. And I think um, I like the analogy I've heard from the uh, manager before where they said, Oh, okay. So I've driven a car for the past 20 years and I've never had a car accident. And the person says, well, why don't you just, why do you keep paying for car insurance? And they said, well, I would never get rid of my car insurance. And you say, why? And it's because of the other drivers. You could be the best driver in the world, but there's other drivers out there who could destroy destroy your car. And when you're indexing, that's what you're doing. You're letting the other drivers take control of your investments. Um, and for some people, you know, maybe that's fine. But for those people who want to, you know, keep control of their own car, it's a it's a different different approach. Yeah, they they also kind of gloss over often in models which index. You know, there are lots of indexes, you know. I mean, we went through a list the other day of available indexes just to measure yourself against. You know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of them uh, from all over the world and with different uh, different kinds of methodologies and, and emphasis. And so um, which one to use uh, is part of the decision process. But if the decision process becomes, let's look at past performance and 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 demonstrate this one really did well. You know that becomes a sales point, as though past performance is going to predict the future, which is not not. It may, but it's not necessarily going to, and usually doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of you know the index is relying on other people in the market doing the price discovery. And as the indexes have grown over time, the market is becoming more indexes and there's fewer people doing the price discovery. So, you know, at some point there's going to be a tipping point. If nobody's looking into some of these really big companies, you just keep buying into them because everybody's buying the S&P 500. You're relying on momentum to get your returns and not what's actually going on in the company. And then guess what? What if that company goes bankrupt? so many people are out an incredible amount of money because they weren't actually looking at the fundamentals of the company. They were just riding along in the index, letting the other people drive the car. And, you know, then what do you do? That's well, you're, that it, it's, it's important. And I, I know we try to it, it try to in our education materials, emphasize to the clients that one of the marks of professional people in the investment world has to do with the risk return relationship, you know, and a lot of people just want to look at the return and the past return. Um, and part of that, uh, the, the fallacy in that is risk may be way more important than return. And uh, we think it's a mark of professionals in the investment business to, to start with risk, you know, and, and, and try to assess how much risk there is in any approach you use, whether it's qualitatively driven or, or, or quantitatively driven. And uh, and pay attention to that first, and that's usually what you have to relate to the client. Because clients have they have built in uh, feelings and biases and opinions about risk, and so the first thing you often need to do in making sure 
a, you know, a portfolio or an investment approach is appropriate and a good thing for the client is to make sure it's consistent with their, their risk tolerance. And that's a risk measure. That's not a return measure. Once you know where that risk is, then you can try to find the most return for that level of risk. Um, and that doesn't always come from, it often doesn't come from models at all. No, no. And, um, you know, I would just say there's that generic language that um, the SEC requires people to put on their things that past performance is no guarantee of future results. And it becomes just like this generic saying, but it's very true. Um, and there's a reason, you know, the SEC and other regulatory authorities require that language on on some of these returns. Um, I think a lot more people could stand to take it to heart. Yeah, there, you know, there's a lot, you know, a lot of folks today that discuss anything the government says and the SEC is part of the government. But uh, that's true. That's true. That, but that one has made a lot of sense over time. And in in I, it's great that people want to be self-reliant, not dependent on the government. That's a lot of what we do in the investment world. We're trying to help people develop their own financial freedom and their own financial independence. Uh, that's not really not related to what others do or what the government does or what their employer does. Um, and, um, so th that's an important aspect of that, that too. It's kind of a, who you're going to trust. Yeah. You know, and, um, and you need to, you know, you need to apply all the, all the tools you've got, not just the numerical tools to do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that was a really great discussion on models and indexing and, and some different approaches out there that you might see, um, so thank you so much for joining us, David. Were there any other last points you wanted to make or you feel like we covered everything? Um, I, the only other one we didn't mention is this, is that how some parts of the industry use these models as a way to layer their fees. Um, you know, this is our fee, you know, and then they kind of don't mention it. They're also charging you a layered fee for who created the model, you know, whether that's an index or other some other kind of model. So layered fees and hidden fees are, you know, they're lurking. They're not just lurking out there. They're common out there. So that's another thing people should watch for. Mm -hmm. Very common. And speaking of the government and trusting them, they are required to disclose these fees in their what's called an ADV. Um, so you can find it in firms ADVs, but guess what? <laughs> they don't write it in the most clear language. No, and it's not so always on the same page. Yeah, you know, yeah. The insurance companies have always been very mm -hmm. adept at having seven different pages on which some of their fees are disclosed. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, you it's not easy them. to figure it out sometimes. <laughs> and there, yeah. And there's a reason it's not easy to figure it out. Right. Yeah, that's you right. No. Yeah. yeah. It's really too bad. But yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. But, you know, that's the okay. world we're dealing in. I know. Right. Okay. That's a country so, song, you know, the world we're living in. <laughs> I have to throw that little country music thing in, Amanda. Yeah, I know. I was going to say same, same ish, different day. Yeah, I was that's right. Trying to think of a PG version, but keeping yeah. it family friendly. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Thank you. See you later, Amanda. Okay. That will do it for this episode of Connecting the Dollars. Nothing discussed in this episode should be considered legal, financial, or tax advice. If you like what you heard, please subscribe for more at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your content. 
when you do, please give us a rating and a review. To see the links we mentioned in our show, along with other great Propel Financial Advisors content, go to connectingthedollars.com. You can find our past episodes there and subscribe to our newsletter. And if you're still here because you have a general question, you can email us directly at info at connectingthedollars.com. Or if you're interested in working with us, click the Schedule a Consultation button on our website. Thank you for listening.